Hello and welcome to the Flucoma podcast. Um, so as you can see, I'm uh, re-recording the introduction to this podcast um, because of a failure in the Zoom recording. Um, and I shall also be interjecting uh, once more during the podcast. Uh, once again, one of my questions uh, got skipped ahead. Um, so uh, you can look forward to that. So um, in this episode of the Flucoma podcast, I talked with uh, Dr. Ben Hackbath, who is currently the Head of Composition at the University of Liverpool um, and is Director of the Interdisciplinary Centre for Composition and Technology and is the Artistic Director of the Musical Features Festival. Um, so Ben has been a composer in research at EARCAM three times and has had residencies all over the world, including the Cité des Arts, the Académie Schloss Solitude and the Santa Fe Chamber Music Festival. Um, so we uh, talked about Ben's approach to data-driven composition um, and also about the development of his well-known software Audio Guide, which allows for corpus-based concat sound synthesis uh, written in Python um, but implemented with output towards a host of different um, environments. So uh, without further ado, here is how that podcast went. Hello and thank you for speaking with me today. Hi, Jacob. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. You're quite welcome. So uh, perhaps you could begin uh, just by explaining how you got into the musical world and also what drove you towards the uh, music technology side of things for your composition. Sure. So that, it's a pretty easy answer. Um, my father is in the music world. He's an electronic music and acoustic music composer and taught at a university in America for 35 years. Um, and so at a young age, I was exposed to contemporary music, um, but I was also exposed to electronic music. I mean, you know, while I was in high school, I was playing with patch synthesizers and I started uh, fooling around a little bit with some synthesis and C sound when I was, you know, b b before I went to university. Um, so I had some early experience um, doing sound processing and also uh, playing with sort of sample-based kind of ac acousmatic music composition. Um, and from that point, went to university and really started in earnest working on electronic music. Um, uh, I think you know, working in the sort of mixed medium uh, is more or less what I've been doing almost exclusively for the last 10 or 15 years. In other words, all of my pieces have had instruments and electronics in some capacity. And that's probably the direction I'll continue in for the, for the foreseeable future. Great. Um, so I know that you've probably talked a lot about Audio Guide. Um, indeed, it's the first time I heard you speak was when you came to Huddersfield, I think about three years ago, and gave a talk about its functionalities for the Creative Coding Lab. Um, in fact, it was one of three talks that I saw at my time in Huddersfield that um, particularly marked me along with Rebecca Fiebrich's uh, talk on Wakinator and also Leafcutter Johns um, to, who talked about his practice. Um, so we don't have to go into, into a very detailed chat about its functionalities um, as those resources are out there. There's a very good tutorial um, video series um, and chances are that many of our listeners will probably be familiar with your software anyway. However, um, there are a few things um, I'd like to ask, uh, notably from your perspective um, as the role of developer. So first, perhaps to frame that, you could um, explain broadly how the software works and, and what it does. Sure, so Audio Guide is a program, like you said, for concatenative sound synthesis. It is non-real-time, meaning that, you know, 
you you uh, send an options file to uh, at the command line and it crunches the numbers and gives you out an output sound file or uh, like you also alluded to a host of other output options which I'm sure we'll talk to talk about a little bit later um, and essentially what it does is it looks it analyzes a target sound file in, in the kind of classic mosaicing computer music uh, uh, signal flow it takes a target sound file analyzes it and then tries to recreate the temporal evolution of that target sound file using sounds from a corpus, a collection of uh, sounds. Um, and more or less that's how it works in terms of, you know, sort of the classic model. Um, it is uh, all written in Python, but you don't necessarily have to know how to like write program in Python to use AudioGuide. It's basically got like a Python syntax options file that you have to interact with. But it's, I think, pretty intuitive and straightforward and not that different from programming in Max MSP or something like that, just minus the visual the visual object interface. Yeah, no, I remember when when I saw you talk about it, I, I'd i done a bit of programming at that time, but I certainly wasn't uh, at the level that I am now. But uh, yeah, it certainly wasn't an interface that scared me off from using it. It seemed very clear and, and, and very straightforward um, to be able to interact with. Um, so I'm interested to learn about um, the story of Audio Guide's development. So um, it was developed by you along with uh, Norbert Chanel, uh, Philip Essling, and Yemma Schwartz. So I was just curious to know um, how the idea came about, um, what was the context for its development, and what are the various forms it may have taken over over the years? Yeah, it, it's a it's an interesting story how it from how it started to sort of where it is now, which is a somewhat fully developed, documented, distributed program. Um, so I was doing my PhD and was incredibly fortunate to be awarded a residency at IRCOM to basically go there and do a, do a project of, of sort of, of my choosing. Um, this is called the Musical Research Residency Program, which I believe they're still running. It might have changed names since I, I did it. Um, but I was one of the first lot of people that did that, and this was back in 2010. And essentially, I was uh, permitted to kind of go there and pick the brains of different researchers working on different different projects that were sort of applicable to what I wanted to do. I some I didn't know very much about concatenative synthesis, but I had proposed this project that was essentially like I just described audio guide. Like I want to sing into the microphone, and then I want the computer to analyze what I've uttered, and then I want it to reassemble sounds from an offline collection to kind of copy that uh, rhythm or that timbre or something like that. And was incredibly fortunate because at Eurocom, of course, there were these three great people working from somewhat different perspectives, but on this kind of similar problem. Um, so, of course, Demo uh, wrote cat art and, and is a um, uh, uh, sound artist himself, and so has a lot of perspectives on music information retrieval. But Norbert was working with a composer by the name of Marco Suarez y Fuentes on doing musicing with Mubu, which was one of his packages he was developing when he was there. Um, in Max. And then Philippe Essling was kind of developing the next generation of Orchidee, which is now Orchidea um, software for offline automatic orchestration uh, that, that uh, now I believe Carmen Isela does. Um, anyhow, so I was there at this really interesting time when, you know, 2010, Demo had kind of put together CatArt five years before that, but there were still lots of questions in the air about like, um, how do we extend this? How do, how do we make concatenative synthesis useful for creative practitioners? How do we make it flexible in ways that creative practitioners want? Uh, how do we make it 
responsive to the sort of so that we can figure out ways to parameterize it and get the things we want out of it. Those questions were very much in their infancy at that time, and so it was really it was really fortunate to kind of explore together with these these gentlemen um, uh, some some programmatic approaches. Um, in the beginning, Audio Guide was completely for me. I didn't write it to be distributed to anyone else. It was it it was and still is a pretty horribly written program from a programmer's point of view, which is probably something we'll also touch on a little bit later. Um, kind of hacked together, you know, um, and. It wasn't until maybe 2014, so about four years after I started, that it actually got distributed publicly for the first time. And even then, it's gone through lots of revisions and bug fixes and stuff since then to sort of become the semi-mature uh, working program that it is now. Um, so yeah, in the beginning, it was just a set of Python scripts I was working on for my own artistic practice. And I was writing a piece at that time that was um, for two percussionists and what I called an imaginary pianist, which was... Uh, electronic part that was you know basically a tape part but it was composed entirely of piano samples and I was using audio guide to arrange these samples in different and I hope unexpected and exciting ways from what one typically encounters when when hearing piano sounds um, so that was kind of the context of how it how it started uh, back in 2010 yeah and so I'd be interested to to hear if sort of from your perspective now, um, looking back at some of the pieces that you made with those initial experiments with Audio Guide, how, how, do, you, how do you look back on those pieces? Do you see them as being kind of very naive explorations of this computational idea? Are they demos or are, are you quite happy with um, the way, uh, with the things that you managed to do with them? How, how do you look back on, on your compositional uh, pieces that you made at that time? Um, f favorably, I mean, I, I think, you know, that I, at the expense of not maybe doing everything that was possible from a technical point of view and focusing more on doing things that I found were musically satisfying, in other words, ignoring tempting technical possibilities that didn't work out well in, in the actual audition process. I feel like I stuck to things that I'm still pretty proud of, musically, gesturally, that, that came out of concatenative, concatenative synthesis. So I, I look back on those pieces fondly, and yeah, it didn't feel like I was writing et etudes, you know, to, to study the application of this new technology for different kinds of musical guises. Rather, it felt like I was trying to invent something within this world, and that was a laborsome, time-consuming process because there's a lot more failure than there is success. Um, and it was grueling at times, but but I think I'm I'm, I'm happy with with the outputs. So there's a, a piano piece that, that maybe we can link to at the bottom called "Am I a Particle or a Wave?" This imaginary pianist into percussion piece. That was kind of the first thing I wrote with Audio Guide. Um, you didn't ask this, but I'll but I'll just say quickly. I, there are two main reasons I made Audio Guide, sort of as a composer, as an artist. The first one was like simple, straightforward pragmatism, um, and I know that this is a, a theme for Flucoma as well. That you know. Even back then in 2010, my hard drive was filling up with sound. And as a composer, I had very few strategies, and I think we still do have very few strategies, to organize it and use it and wield it in a musically fluid way. Yeah? And so there was just a simple pragmatic concern at the beginning where I wanted to be able to sing a gesture, a stupid simple gesture into a microphone like bup up. And then I wanted the computer to take that thing I just uttered and make a version of it with piano or make a version of it with tapping on cardboard boxes or make a version of it with trombone sounds, you know, whatever I wanted, yeah? Um, I just wanted a more kind of rapid prototyping environment for making gestures. 
And when you work with samples, collections of any appreciable size, it becomes really cumbersome to, to, to try to do that without the help of the computer. So that was kind of the first reason I started, was just a simple pragmatic desire to be able to more fluidly express myself in one medium and help have the computer sort of help me transcribe it into another one. Um, and the second reason was a bit more conceptual. I was, uh, I've never been particularly interested in sound processing. I've always felt like, and this is very much a personal thing, that even when pro sound is processed, digital signal processing or filtering, even when it's done somewhat subtly, I instantly feel a distance from the original source it was recorded from. And I was much more interested back then in making pieces that had very little processing, but were more about how things were collaged rather than you know processing the things themselves. And was really inspired by some pieces, especially a piece by Paul Kuhn's called Whitewash um, and a piece by the composer Stephen Takasugi called De Clavier Ubung, I think, which is a piece, a tape piece made of piano samples. And um, that piece really kind of inspired this piece I wrote with Audio Guide, this MI Particle or a Wave piece, in the sense that I was really fascinated by this idea of being in, encountering these really familiar piano sounds that I knew very well musically in my bones, but they were organized and put in time in a way that felt like they were sort of possessed or driven by some other foreign gestural energy. And that was a really exciting and inspiring experience for me, this idea that these old sounds were sort of had a breath of fresh air through a new temporal juxtaposition. And so my hope was that, sort of on a more conceptual level, that Audio Guide could be a way to organize gestures to make familiar sounds feel like they were being driven by something new. Hello again. Uh, so this is where the uh, Zoom recording failed, unfortunately. Um, but basically, uh, this is where I was um, wanting to understand how Ben uh, uses concat synthesis um, in his uh, creative compositional practice. Um, so obviously with uh, Audio Guide, there's a number of different workflows that can be derived from it. There's different ways that we can use it um, from creating back roll scores um, to exporting things as AIFF files. Um, and I wanted to know how uh, he used Audio Guide in his, um, in his uh, practice and how that may have developed over the years. Yeah, it's developed a ton. Initially, it was to make a tape, tape part. And that, that was kind of it. Um, and I did have, have some ways of like output files where each sound is on a different channel so you can really process things individually. I mean, I do do some processing after all. Um, uh, but then it did develop. I became interested uh, about five or six years ago in doing acoustic instrument writing with concatenative synthesis, which is not something that's new. It's been going on for, for a while. Um, also something that has been done a lot at Ircom. Um but I became interested in not so much in orchestration in kind of a static way, which is what Orchidee is. You give it the sound of a car honk and it gives you or different orchestrations for full orchestra of that static sound. I was interested more in like, okay, can I beatbox and then have it translate that beatboxing into piano? I mean, not exactly beatboxing, sort of my angular new music version of beatboxing, but, but that kind of idea of can I, instead of you know using concatenative synthesis to just create an output sound file, like you say, can I use it to create uh, to make a musical score. And in 2017, 2018, I started working on another kind of piano electronics piece called Liquid Study um, Number 2, where I did use targets mostly of my voice and then s used it to pick piano sounds, some of which went into an electronic part and some of which went into a live perform part. 
and initially this was very hacked together and not very well done um, and programmatically. Like I kind of had to, there was a lot of filtering and parsing that went on by hand to sort of make a playable acoustic part out of computer selections from a large corpus of piano sounds. It's a complicated problem. Um, but that was my first experience with really uh, doing that, you know, using a single gestural resource like my voice to make gestures intuitively, fluidly, however you want to say it. And then having the computer create both an electronic part and an acoustic part that were intertwined, whose sum kind of approximated what I was doing with my voice. And that was really exciting to me to really try to integrate those two resources in a really intimate way. Mm. Now, it is interesting. Um, so one of the features that you were kind of leading to there in audio guide um, uh, is being able to create uh, these scores for back row, for example, where you set in the in the parameters when you're doing the concat synthesis, you can set conditions for for moving to different kinds of things so that you can make it more or less playable, that kind of stuff. Um, so I'm interested to hear about how you work with instrumentalists and how they come into this workflow and your approach to writing scores and how they exist within that network. So I would assume um, that, you know, being derived from these kinds of techniques that um, you may accord quite a high level of importance to a very precise execution of the score. But um, yeah, I was wondering if you could talk about that. Yeah, so I think what I'd like to do to answer that first is maybe just give a couple of sound examples. I've sort of been talking so far about like using my voice and then transcribing it into another world of sound. And I feel like it'd just be useful if I made that a little bit more concrete. So if you just give me a moment, I'm going to share my computer audio. And I'm somewhat embarrassed to share these because they're kind of like not, they're, they're obviously sound files I initially created just kind of privately in the composition process. Um, like I said, my sort of angular new music beatboxing, but it will give you a sense of what I mean when I say that I was trying to use my voice as this kind of improvisatory medium where I was free to make, to juxtapose rhythms and timbres the way I wanted. And then in a second step, translate that into a more complex world of sound that involves a, that involves a large corpus. So this is from this piece, Liquid Study 2. This is one of the targets um, that I used with my voice. I'll just give you like four or five seconds of it. Do you get a sense? Okay, so just kind of simple articulations. And here's how that sounded translated into some piano sounds. So they sound kind of simple, but each one of those is made of like, I don't know, 20 or 30 different kind of piano sounds that are really carefully chosen to try to sort of match the timbres of what I was doing with my voice. Um, just to give you one other example of this kind of relationship, here's a sort of different kind of style of target sound file I made with my voice. I'll first play that and then I'll play some of the version of that that's translated into piano sounds with audio guide. Okay, so there's some target sound. Here's some resulting piano concatenation. So hopefully that gives you some kind of clear or more palpable sense of what I'm talking about when I say this kind of continuum um, of, of starting where I'm working with my own voice 
somewhat in an improvisatory way. I do a lot of editing after the fact, but it is it does start from a kind of place of musical improvisation and, and sort of caprice. And then in a second step, I take that those vocal sounds with audio guide and translate them into this sometimes very dense thicket of piano sounds. Um, and I know flucoma is based on kind of fluid, <laughs> making things more fluid. And I think audio guide has a, has uh, you know shares that goal. Um, and I think those examples kind of show that these kind of fluid improvisatory vocal gestures can become this really complex, driven, intricate collection of piano sounds with with relative ease through through music information retrieval. Um, so that's just a quick example of to kind of flesh out a little bit more some of what I was just speaking to you about. Um, with respect to writing for instruments, it's been a gradual process. You're right that um, initially it was it was and sort of still is very specific. I do want specific rhythms. I do want specific timbral juxtapositions. And so, yeah, I think p part of what I do is um, recording a collection of different sound possibilities on a given instrument for a specific moment in a piece of music, and then using concatenative synthesis to kind of explore different rhythmic variations or different juxtapositions of timbres that I might be able to do. And that does require a lot of manual work where you have to to, trans to go from, let's say, pizzicato to arco, you have to give a certain delay time to get from one technique to the other. And there's all these kinds of programmatic things you have to think about when it comes to making a part for instrumentalists that they can actually play in time. Um, it's quite a, quite a complex problem, but one that, especially over the last five years, I think I've made good progress on. And Audio Guide's current distribution, I think, is pretty useful in that regard and, and functions, functions pretty well. Yeah. It, it was interesting listening to those audio examples because, because um, yeah, so obviously, especially the second uh, voice example was quite, seemed to be quite edited and, you know, you'd, you'd done some um, kind of editing on your and processing on your vocals there, but it does strike me as very kind of gestural and because um, it seemed it, it, it appears to me that with audio guide that that seems to be a, a, a really important focus of it because um, on one hand we've got timbre so you've got your voice and you've got the piano and you're not necessarily looking to um, to recreate that exact timbre of your voice with the piano because you know that it's going to be different you know that it's going to sound like a piano however you've got this freedom in 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 gesture um, so as you said, you know, this is going to be something that's looked at in the Flute Cohen project. And um, I think it's also interesting to, to think about relationships of time in that dynamic. So I was talking about this the other week with Zakir Leeming and Chris Mellon from PRISM and their implementation of sample RNN, RNN, sorry. Um, and as with Audio Guide, obviously all their stuff is geared towards doing stuff offline. It's um, things like that but uh the trucoma tools are designed for some of them are designed for working in a live context and you've got tools like uh, rodrigo constanda's um cc combined for example which is sort of live um concat synthesis um and so obviously that the the freedom of kind of vocal expression and gestural improvisation is 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 even stronger is that is that something that you feel you'd like to explore in your work? Is it something that interests you? Or, um, how do you feel on that kind of relationship with time that comes with uh, Audio Guide? Yeah, it's definitely something I'm interested in. Um, when I started working on Audio Guide in 2010, 
the people I was working with, most of what they were doing was real time, right? I mean, D Demos, cat art is is real time concatenation synthesis, and, and Max and and Norbert was doing real time as well with with Mubu. Um, I mean, I think there are advantages and disadvantages to both. Um, I guess there's two things I'll, I'll talk about quickly when it comes to this question of real time. The first one is one of the reasons I shied away from it initially was kind of questions of density. Like I was interested in not kind of taking a target sound and picking one corpus sound for each target segment necessarily, not being limited to that, but also being able to make much denser and, and I think a sort of richer results through layering sounds. And this is something that we don't have time to really go into in this video, but um, maybe we can link. There's a portion of one of the tutorials where I talk about how it works in the program. But, but Audio Guide basically lets you pick, for each target segment, it can pick a mixture of multiple corpus segments whose sum, when they're mixed together, their descriptors, the, the mixture of their descriptors approximate approximates the target descriptors. And that for me is exciting in the sense that rather than just having this kind of one shot, sort of scattershot sounding out outcome, I can have these richer results that maybe wouldn't be possible in real time. So that was one thing that pushed me to the side of thinking about doing this in deferred time and, you know, non-real time. Um, but the other one was, was more important, the other thing I want to mention about this, and that's something you should just sort of mention about gesture and time and, and, and fluid uh, uh, outcomes. Um, one of the problems with, so real time has a lot of advantages, obviously. It's more fluid than working with audio guide, I think, working with cat art. You can actually just sing into a microphone and get instant results rather than what I do, which is recording and then loading and processing and you know, a delay of about 10 seconds, let's say. Um, but there's disadvantages too. And, and one of them is that um, in a real time context, you, you know, for lack of a more elegant way of saying it, you, you sort of can't know the future, right? If if I start making a sound with my voice and I want the computer to match it, and I'm using Max, and I say th, um, the computer doesn't know yet whether I'm gonna say that or the or this, right? It only knows the start. So when the onset happens, it can measure the timbre of what my voice is doing, but it doesn't capture the duration. It doesn't know the duration of what I'm going to do. It doesn't know the sh amplitude shape. It doesn't know how it's gonna evolve in time morphologically. Um, you're sort of blind uh, when it comes to doing concatenation in real time because you don't know the future. And um, that means that matching is a little bit less rich and intricate in my experience. You know, you can kind of match single scattershot frames rather than matching segments, rather than matching whole chunks. And for me, I was always, because I'm sort of less on the glitchy side of things and more on the... Um, kind of acoustic sounding side of things, I was always more interested in matching whole segments of sound rather than than, than fragments of, of uh, with, with clear cuts. Um, and so when you were talking before about like, you know, tools for gesture and this being a tool for generating these kinds of long-term flowing gestures, like in some of those examples I just played, um, part of what makes that work in Audio Guide well, I think, is that Audio Guide analyzes the whole sound file from start to finish, and it looks at all the places that that sound goes over 10 seconds, 20 seconds, however long it is, and then it takes that world and remaps it to fit over the corpus. So it's kind of like, you know, if you think about it, almost like blue tack or silly putty, like your target has a kind of certain shape, and then Audio Guide kind of comes in and reshapes it to fit over whatever the expressive range of your corpus of sounds is. That could be bigger, it could be smaller, but it tries to do the same kind of expression over time, the same 
the same kind of sense of movement over time through timbre space that it was that your target was doing. So I think sort of for me, because like you say, my voice is never my the piano is never going to sound like my voice or maybe a better way of saying it is I don't want it to. I want it to kind of always sound a little bit loosely inspired by because I don't I would just use a phase vocoder cutter if I wanted, you know, that that kind of hardcore clear relationship. Um, uh, because it's never going to sound like my voice, I want my voice to kind of be remapped within the world of the piano as dramatically and excitingly as I can. And that's only really possible, I think, in a non-real-time situation where you really know the target from start to finish. Yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. Uh, just to say one other thing about that. I mean, the classic, the classic you know, approach to sort of solve this problem, which people were doing back in 2010, was you have a delay, you introduce a delay so that in real time, your sound signal's coming in, you wait for a second so that you have a better sense of what each segment was, you sort of normalize a little bit so you can kind of figure out the range of sounds you're working with. There are tricks around it. I'm not trying to say that you know it's one or the other, but I do find that the richness of what's possible and the nuance that I can treat materials, I just have a lot more control in an unreal-time situation, and I guess that's what drew me initially to concatenative synthesis, and still kind of excites me about it. Yeah, it's still a question that's that that's still being explored by a lot of people in lots of different ways. I mean, just the different kinds of slicing uh, objects that you get in the flute cable toolkit, novelty slicing according to different things, and transient onset, um, that kind of stuff, and. Yeah, Rod, again, working on kind of just-in-time analysis with different windows, uh, you know, experimenting with different window sizes according to the kind of instrument that you're playing. So it's a, it's a really interesting question. And, and I think the way um, that people choose to deal with that and also working offline also is a way of dealing with that um, can kind of inform us about um about some of the creative ideas behind uh, some of the music that's being made um, yeah no it's really interesting um i'd like to get um a bit into uh your role so your sort of dual role um as a developer and a composer um so you've mentioned qatar and and the kind of things that were happening at aircam when you were first kind of um delving into this um Something that's you know obviously quite striking about Qatar is that um, two-dimensional sound grid interface thing, um, and a lot of the flucome tools are geared towards being able to create these kind of data-driven musical interfaces. Um, and uh, so, what I find interesting um, in Audio Guide, one thing that's quite remarkable is um, the kind of text-based uh, Python paradigm. I was wondering if there were any kind of particular afford affordances that um, this interface offered you. Um, and also talking about interface, um, in terms of output as well, back JSON, uh, logic, um, not logic pro uh, projects, but AIFF files. Um, I was wondering, yeah, what, what um, in that context of the year cam where you had tools like Qatar, uh, what pushed you to develop this in Python text-based environment? And yeah. yeah, it's a it's a messy answer and not one that I think has a lot of principle behind it, as as I think often happens with electronic music, where you're kind of hacking things together. You know, you're you're just trying to make something work and and maybe not thinking so much about the bigger picture or from from a more holistic point of view. Um, 
originally it was in well it was in python originally because i wanted to do a non-real-time thing and uh d wanted to be able to make these really dense concatenations um you know if you uh, that piece that I, I mentioned that will be linked to the mi particle or a wave piece you know there are times where just like there's like thousands of piano samples per second that are happening and and it's really only possible to create to, to have created that piece in a non-real-time context at least back then uh, maybe that's changed now though i don't think so um but um the I'm not massively passionate about the text-based aspect of audio guide. I think, I mean, I'm one of the things I'm eager to do in the future when it comes to development of audio guide is develop a graphical interface for it that really helps make a bit more explicit what's possible. Um, and by that, I mean, audio guide gives you all these different controls for, like I was talking about before, sorry, this is all about voice and piano, but when you have a voice target and a piano database, there's all these different ways you can kind of map your voice onto the piano. And I've, I've become convinced over the last I don't know, five years that the best way to do that, both in terms of precision as well as just making it fluid and easy, is with a proper graphical interface. Um, I don't think Max is the answer because <laughs> I don't think the graphical interface is very good and very robust and... I don't think drawing is good enough to support what is needed in terms of a kind of visual editing style software for for target sound file trajectories, for lack of a better term. But I think it's, you know, there's a lot of really great things about the Max GUIs. And there's certainly a lot of great things about the XY coordinate space where you can explore a collection of sounds. You know, it's useful not just from the fact that you can sort of better understand what's being chosen and why, but you can also just get to know descriptors somewhat, you know, and kind of start to understand what center it is and how it sounds and start to understand what is the relationship between center and loudness by plotting it on X, Y. There's a lot of valuable pedagogical elements to that, having space, sound spaces like that, that can help us understand the tools and parameters we're using to do things like concatenation and similarity, uh, search and retrieval. Um, so for Python, I, th uh, I think the reason for Audio Guide that I went with Python and stayed in a text-based world was primarily one of like development. As I said in the beginning, I wasn't I wasn't writing Audio Guide for public distribution initially. I was just writing for myself and I wanted to, I knew Python and I wanted to work, I thought it was a good language to sort of rapidly prototype something where if someone told me about, you know, using different kinds of, um, uh, I don't know, uh, equations from a scientific package, I could really easily download that, import it, and then all of a sudden have it at my fingertips within an hour in my program environment, you know? That's not something that's easy to do in Max. Um, and so Python's rapid prototyping was really attractive for me, and it's kind of kept Audio Guide in that world and also kept it text-based for, for, for the time being. Um, I think there was a moment when I first met PA and was talking to him about Flucoma maybe three, four years ago where... Um, he was talking to me about using signal decomposition on the target. And it's a really great idea and a really interesting one, you know, that you break your target into different signal streams and then do concatenation on those different streams. Um, and I had it, you know, was able to find a package in Python that did that and had it working, you know, within within the afternoon. And so that kind of kind of rapid prototyping, even if it's not perfect or like, you know, necessarily that uh, optimized, it's really useful for exploring musically and figuring out what works and what doesn't. And that's always been, I suppose, at the heart of what Audio Guide is, has been for me in my own practice is like trying 10 things and nine of them don't sound good, but 
one does and I'm just kind of kind of working your way through different possibilities and trying different uh, algorithmic approaches and, and Python's great for that. Yeah, uh, it is interesting because um, at the moment writing an Explore article about uh, James Bradbury's work, who you'll know because um, I, I think you were on his uh, PhD, um, who, who has, so obviously they do different things, but a similar kind of environment that he's developed in Python as well, finding things in stuff, which uh, it's not really concat synthesis, but it's um, this kind of big corpus um, dealing with big corpora. And and one, th one thing that is similar to uh, between his approach and yours is, um, yeah, James also kind of bypasses a lot of the kind of visual uh, representations uh, to, to get his uh, scripts to yield, immediately yield uh, a sound and uh, collections of sounds and sounds. He, he outputs stuff to Reaper and, you know, he's immediately within a thing that he then works with as, as a composer rather than through these 2D kind of sound maps and things like that. But yeah, no, it's really interesting. It's different approaches, um, but it's, it's interesting to, yeah, there is also the practical side of when you're working with kind of lists and, you know, um, lists within lists and, and that kind of stuff, working in Python and text-based um, language is obviously going to be a thousand times uh, less of a headache than working with Max uh, or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, there is that. I mean, I mean, I've always, another reason I liked working in Python, I think is because as a, as I think this is something you want to, to talk about, um, uh, this question of being a developer and being a creative person and both of those skill sets having to exist within, within me and trying to negotiate how I manage my time and all of that. Um, I think one of the reasons I went with Python as well is that I, and this is a personal choice and a personal feeling, I don't think composing and programming are the same thing. And I think I don't find that sort of applying programming principles to composition or vice versa is useful for me. And so, and to the contrary, I find that it's really easy to confuse technical success with musical success, not just for programming, but for electronic music generally. And so I really like to keep them separate. Like I have maybe a month where I really work on developing new ideas I've been wanting to do with Audio Guide, and then I stop, and then I compose, and I use Audio Guide like a tool, and I get frustrated with it just like everyone else gets frustrated with every other tool that they made or not. Um, and, and that's just part of the process for me. But it keeping it in Python kind of helps me compartmentalize it, I suppose, in a way. Keep it to the side, not have it be part of a music making process, mostly just because I found I'm, I'm able to sort of have musical ideas and sort of dream musically in a much more fluid and capricious way if I'm not thinking about programming. And and so for me, I, I do keep the two separate and, and that's part of maybe why I use Max for composing and I use, you know, Audio Guide, uh, Python for, for sort of programming Audio Guide and adding new features and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, no, that is, uh, that is really interesting because it's something that's, yeah, it's, it's difficult to do and, but so, it's interesting to hear that, yeah, you've been able to very well kind of keep those two things separate and very consciously do that. It's something that you're very aware of and it's something that you, you do. Yeah. Um, I'm also interested to learn because uh, something that we talk about. So again, as I said earlier, when we're talking about concat synthesis, that kind of stuff, we talk a lot about the things we do, with the sounds and stuff. Um, but I'm also interested um, to learn about how you go about the activity of corpus curation. So this is something that's come up a few times with various other people that I've talked to. Um, so 
Is this something that you find a particularly stimulating part of the creative process? Is it something that you have to have a lot of control over? Is it something that for each piece you'll build up a new corpus? Um, what are your strategies for going about that kind of activity? Yeah, it's a great question. And I um, agree, not one that gets talked about enough. Like we're always so focused on the algorithms or the novelty of what we're doing mathematically or whatever. And I think we don't focus enough on music, but 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 also this question of like just the actual sound resources themselves, what they are, their extent, uh, and, and why we've selected them, I think is such such an interesting topic. Um, my my life as a corpus collector uh, predates my my life as a programmer, meaning, you know, when I was a young composer, I was working on pieces with, for electronics and instruments. I was in the studio with the violin and not able to play it, but able to manipulate it in different ways to get sounds out of it and recording reams of material that I wanted to use in my pieces. And initially was using them in a kind of common practice way where I cut them up into bits by hand and did sound processing and use C-Sound and use some super glider and, and that kind of thing. Um, so my interest in sort of collecting a corpus as a kind of documentation or, or as a kind of library of all of the sounds that an instrument can do is something that's, that I've had an interest in for, for a long time. And, and have often, you know, before I started doing kind of synthesis, thought about my sound file collection of my violin sounds as like a big static library and my piece is me walking through that library. You know? So this, these, these ideas of navigating a corpus have been around for me for, for long before I started doing music information retrieval and concatenation synthesis. Um, uh, so, so generally speaking, it's important to me and I think a lot about it. And I think a lot about moving through the sound possibilities that of the corpus that I've recorded for a piece as a formal, as part of how I define the form of the, the music. So there'll be a moment when all of a sudden this new part of the corpus appears kind of like a Zanakis percussion piece where all of a sudden there's a new set of instruments that haven't played for 20 minutes and all of a sudden they, they come in full force, yeah? That same kind of sort of formal approach I also sort of apply to thinking about the corpus, its resources and how they're deployed strategically. Um, also, I think most of the, the corpora that I make are small and narrow and focused on one kind of sound activity and getting as many different kind of variations on that sound activity as I can. So um, I just want to play one other excerpt for you just to give you a sense of a corpus and then something I did with that corpus from the same piece, Liquid Study 2. Um, so there's a moment in this piece where I wanted to have like the pitch F6 on the keyboard, the, the piano pitch, as many different ways as I could. And so I tried to make this really exhaustive corpus just using that one pitch and trying to make sound with it as many as many fashions as I could. So uh, I'll just play a couple of them for you to give you a sense of what this corpus consists of. Obviously, you can't see it, but it's a big folder on my computer. Uh, here I put a fork in between the strings and was playing kind of prepared with a, with a fork. Um, kind of buzzy prepared sound. Um, I also used a, a butter knife to hit the strings. Um, I also just muted the strings and did some attacks. Um, I plucked, uh, hit it with some metal objects, uh, as well as used, I think, a pencil. Yeah. So, and this is maybe a corpus of like a thousand different segments where I'm playing the same pitch over and over again with different kinds of implements. And so I'm capturing, in effect, this like really narrow, small space of acoustic variation. I mean, compared to 
my voice or compared to some other target sound file, the how you know how much expression there is, how much variation there is over time of the features of the centroid of whatever else, it's very small, right, in this in this corpus, but. I'm really interested in kind of taking that really small space and then musically exploring it, kind of making it bigger and fuller and more dimensionalized through help, having the computer help me organize it temporally. So using that, those uh, sounds, here's just a quick excerpt from this piece um, to, to give you a sense of just, just the electronic part, the, the piano sounds, to give you a sense of how I'm using those repeated uh, samples uh, with concatenosynthesis. That gives a sense of like, I don't know, I, I sort of want sound to feel like it's under the microscope. It's it's wild, but it's this magnified part of the piano. Normally you're focused on this whole range. Here you're just kind of like, you've got a magnifying glass and you're just looking at this one string and there's kind of wild activity on that string, but it's still, in terms of the whole piano's sonic repertoire, quite, quite narrow. And so I suppose that's when I said before, I'm sort of interested in the drama and the formal unveiling of a corpus across time in a piece of music. Those are the kinds of things I'm talking about. Kinds of zoom, zooming in metaphorically really close on a small space sometimes, zooming back out other times and having kind of this wild romp across, you know, all of the, in this case, pianos, uh, sound resources. Yeah, that is really interesting. This kind of question of sense of scale as well, which, um, for example, uh, Gerard Romer's piece that he did for Flucoma when he was curating his corpus, it was a, a collection of cooking sounds. He, over like the space of a month, um, he'd, he'd have his uh, recorder in the kitchen and each time he heard something a bit new, he'd say, oh, I don't have something like that. You know, he'd go and record it. So very kind of broad, just very, you know, large scale sense of getting an idea for cooking sounds. And then you've got someone like, James Bradbury again, who's got this very quite more specific kind of timbral idea of electronic noise and and sort of ideas of um, electricity and interference and all that kind of stuff in the kind of corpus that he's creating. And then with the kind of activity you're describing, this kind of very zoomed in, wanting to put the sounds and, and uh, an idea of sound under the microscope and seeing all the various ways that it can be done. Yeah, no, it's 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 a really interesting concept, I find. Yeah. Um, well, so, as I just said, so this is, um, you know, these kind of techniques can be approached in many different ways. And um, Audio Guide um, is a tool that's been used by um, many different artists, um, some of them quite close to the Flucoma project. So, uh, P.A. Tremblay's uh, used them, Olivier Pasquet as well. Um, so I wonder maybe as a final question, um, you might want to talk about uh, your experience of having your tool being uh, used by other artists and and perhaps also the experience of discovering music um, that's been made with your tool by other people. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, the first thing I want to say, I'm sort of a little bit embarrassed to admit it, but I'm going to, and that's that when I first wrote Audio Guide, I was very protective of it. I felt like it was mine, you know, and I didn't want to give it out. Um, and people would ask me and I would give it to them, but but I didn't publicize it, I didn't put it online, I didn't distribute it, I didn't document it, you know. All of those things, of course, take a lot of work uh, that as well, but but I was, I was protective of it. And 
gradually I learned working with it that it wasn't some magic box that made good music. <laughs> All this, the hard work and the toil that one has to put into making good music uh, uh, was still p part of the process. Um, and at a certain point, I decided that it, that it was sort of time to release it into, in, into the world. And and um, it's been really interesting to get music. I, I mean, first of all, it's weird to have an open source project because you have no idea if 30 people are using it or, you know, 3,000. I mean, it's it, it's hard to judge scale and Im impact, to say a dirty word in the UK. Um, uh, but but it's been really gratifying to have all the have people the people who have gotten in touch send, send me their stuff. Um, you know, please if you're watching and make music with Audio Guide, I, I always love getting emails from from people sh showing me what they're doing. Um, in terms of what I've gotten from having other people use it, it's clarified for me four things I think that are really important about it that I sort of didn't realize or I hadn't sort of codified as clearly as, 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 I, as I have in recent years since I've started receiving other people's work. The first is that I think Concatenative Synthesis is really powerful because sound files are just super open. You know, this idea of having a sound file be a target, the sound file is your, your musical destination for what you want to happen gesturally. But because the sound file is so open, you know, it can be improvised or very carefully crafted. Uh, it, you know, it, it can be something that is found sounds, or it can be something that's that's performed you know, by by a virtuoso, whatever. But because the sound file is such an open format, it accommodates so many different people's work and methods of working. And I think that makes you know, concatenative synthesis a really powerful uh, tool as, as as a consequence. The second thing is that it's, I think, when we when we focus on dis, on music, electronic music as research and and tools and methodological research as you know creating outputs in the academic sense we focus way too much on conceptual artistic approaches and these really um full-throated embraces of technological ideas and we don't focus enough on the pragmatic ramifications of simple things that make creative people's lives easier it's not sexy to say that oh i can just sing a gesture with my voice and then hear it recreated with all these different corpora, but it's an incredibly powerful pragmatic revelation for um, composers to have a fluid transform between expressing themselves and, and getting different kinds of sonic results in gestural time. Yeah. Um, and that became a lot clearer for me when I started hearing people's work, um, which isn't to say that, you know, the third thing is, it's, it's not to say that the conceptual thing isn't interesting too, and I've got pieces of music where I focus on concatenative synthesis in a much more conceptual way using a poetic text, for instance, to design a whole section of a piece of music or or thinking about other ways to do kind of search and replace as a musical uh, strategy that goes beyond just using a technology. Um, uh, the conceptual ways are also powerful and I think really varied with kind of synthesis, which is exciting. But the final thing I wanted to say that um, I've gotten from distributing the tool and hearing other people's work is it's really focused me on the future and the future of sound making and music making and the tools we need to be present in the future and participate in the future. Um, I think it's pretty clear, especially from the perspective of electronic music, that composers want to work with the sounds that are around them. Going back to the, to the beginnings and until now, I think that's been a really clear feature of what what composers are drawn to doing. And we face, you know, a challenging situation in the next 10, 20 years as the size of the resources we have around us continues to explode. We don't yet have 
enough tools to grab those resources, to work with them, to express ourselves with them. And I think hearing other people's work with Audio Guide and having some other people have enthusiasm for it has really pushed me to keep developing it and, and, and think about the future and, and what future musical engagements will be like, what you know sound sampling will be like in 20 years, I think will be much different than what it is now, and what you know using sample libraries will be, how they're exchanged. I think all of that is going to become uh, really fast-paced and data-heavy and exciting, but we need the tools to help us participate in that data-rich world. And um, working with other composers has helped me see the importance of that kind of broader goal outside of the scope of my own practice. Mm. That's great. Uh, well, um, yeah, no, and I think um, tools like Audio Guide, uh, Flickr as well, uh, going to be part of that future. And I think a symptomatic of, of yeah, these this kind of sound environment and the possibilities that we have around us um yeah that's great um so thank you so much ben uh of course audio guide will be linked to down below um, i'm sure this will have motivated more than one person if they haven't tried it out themselves uh, to give it a try and of course uh, the works and pieces that you've, uh, you've been discussing are also going to be linked uh, down below um thank you so much Thank you so much. You're quite welcome. And I shall speak to you again soon. Take care.